We continue our study of the Sefer Kuzari from the middle of the third essay, Simin Chaf Beis 22. Today we will study the third, the remainder of the third, and the complete fourth essay. The main topics covered are arguments against Kairoite Judaism and in favor of Rabbinic Judaism, how the Messiah, the tradition of the Torah, was preserved. Some things about Chazal and the Mishnah and Talmud and their ways. That's the That will cover the third essay. The fourth essay deals with the names of Hashem, meanings of the various names of Hashem. Deals with prophecy. Compares Judaism and other religions and other religious approaches. And then has a long discussion of Wisdoms and the Jewish people, specifically Rabbi Yudah Levi's analysis of Sefer Yitzira, of the Book of Creation. So, to begin, we're at the third essay, Simon Chaf Beis. The king asks Rabbi Yudah Levi to tell him his arguments against the Karoyim. Because the Karoyim, said the king, work harder than the rabbinical Jews. And the arguments, in fact, seem to be more consistent with the simple meaning of the Pesukim of the Torah. So the Chavah reminds the king that thinking too hard and relying on your own logic is not the path to get to the will of God, a common theme we had in the, in the book. And he says, if it would all depend on a person's thinking, then lots of people reached erroneous conclusions based on their thought. People who believed in duality of God, people who believed that the world is eternal, people who believe that the stars are spiritual, all of these people use their own thought to approach God. But the only way to approach God, this is a major theme in the book, is through the commandments given by God, not through reason. Only God knows proper amounts, times and places for us to do the kinds of things that will connect us to the Dove are lucky to the connection. Give us this connection with the divine. Like it says in the building of the Mishkan. On each action. B'tzalah made the urn. B'tzalah made the kapayos. He made the curtains. All of them it says, Ask Hashem commanded Moshe. Meaning exactly as he did. Although those works in the Mishkan, based on logic, would not have to be so exact. And at the end of the story, it says, Moshe saw everything and did it as Hashem commanded. And that's when the Shekinah dwelt. Because... The Shechina dwelt after they built the Mishkan because here is a very important point. The two pillars of the Torah are. The two pillars of the Torah are that the Torah comes from Hashem, from God, and that the whole people do it with the full heart. So that those two conditions were filled by the Mishkan in that it was by the command of God and it was done with everyone's great happiness. They will to do it. They did it willingly and therefore Vishachanti Besaykum Hashem dwelt in, among them. Again, the Buddha lady gives an analogy of nature. We cannot figure out the exact proportions within nature required to create things, required to create blood or fat or seed, such that we should be able to create living things. And of course, today we have approached this to a large extent. But he's abusing the analogy of nature and saying how complex nature is. To a large extent, of course, you can take the analogy on a 
micro level and still prove the same point that um, there are certain things that requires God's knowledge to determine and we can't figure it out on our own. Similarly, the living nation, remember the idea that the Jewish people is like a living organism that requires certain kinds of actions to stay alive and the, li and the life force of the living organism is God. Um, the, the, the amount necessary of each particular action the amount necessary to keep the Dover lucky, the connection with the divine among them, is must come from God. In we can't be too smart, we can't think for ourselves when it comes to God. So therefore, how, says the Chavar, how are we supposed to not try to be too smart for ourselves and accept God's word? Word. So because we admit that this requires tradition, Messiah. We're not supposed to be figuring things out on our own, we're supposed to be accepting it from people who've accepted it directly from God. And the Chavah says, indeed, the Torah was given over with that kind of tradition. So the king says to him, well, yeah, you know, what if you have various different Torah? What if different scrolls have different versions? So how do you know which one is right? How do you know which tradition to accept? Chavah said, we go by the majority. And then the king says, well, what if there are some, this is a very interesting passage, he says, what if there are certain verses that are clearly seem to be an error? Should you say, well, there's an error in the tradition? And the Chavik tells him, well, once you start changing things in the holy writings, then it's a very slippery slope because you first change letters and you can change words and then you can change sentences until you complete, until you change the whole content. So therefore, it makes more sense to accept the Masoretic text, the text of the Tanakh as it is and not change anything. Then the Kozi says to him, well, how did Moshe give the Sefer? So we're talking about the tradition of the Torah. How did Moshe give his book to Bnei Yisrael? So the Chavah says he gave him a Sefer, as we have it, like our Sefer Torah, without avowals, without the Nekudis. And it was known to the people, it was taught to the people by heart how to read it. The Kahan and the priests, the kings, the Sanhedrin, those who had to know the law, and the Hasidim, the pious people who wanted to study in order to re receive reward, and also people who were hypocritical and sought to to uh, get honor by knowing the Torah, mastered it. And because of that, eventually they, they gave the the vowel pointers that we're familiar with, and the trap, the tamim, but originally it was just memorized, and other simonim. They made the psukim, and then they made the vowels, and the tamim, and the messiah that reminds that keeps track of which letters which words are in full and, and and lacking and other signs about the Torah and of course he says what do you think what was the point of doing all this meaning the preservation of the exact text was it a good thing to do so the quiz says it was a wonderful thing to do and that way it preserves um, the accuracy of the text and in fact and in fact because he says that the Nikud and the Tamim show great wisdom that must have been divinely inspired. An amazing thing. Must have been divinely inspired. It's a kind of wisdom, that he says, which nothing is comparable to it. So this must have come with divine inspiration and people only accepted it because it came from people, either groups or individuals, that were favored by God. So the Chavah says, okay, so basically we're accepting part of the tradition. And even the Karayim, who deny the oral tradition, have to accept the tradition regarding how to read the Torah. So the Kozi says, yeah, well, they say that you don't need a tradition for the Torah because the Torah is complete. And the Chavah says, well, look, here you have this book. 
without Nekudas, without Lutamim, and we, and we have to accept the tradition regarding that, um, where the parashas begin, where the Pesukim begin and end. So certainly, we need to accept the tradition for understanding what the Torah means. The Torah by itself doesn't help us, un- doesn't completely give us a full understanding. And he gives examples of this. For example, this is the first of the months. Well, what month is it referring to? And is it a solar month? Is it a lunar month? How could the Kairoim know this? And he says, I would love, and this is a point he keeps on making, he says, I would love to do things the way the Kairoim do, which figure things out by themselves, because that's wonderful. It's a wonderful idea that it could work hard and figure it out, but there is no way. And he gives a bunch of examples. What does the Torah mean when it says to zvicha, to do she- slaughtering, shechting? What, how do you do that? And he gives a bunch of examples. What makes zivchigayim aser? Which fats are aser? Which fats are mutter? Basically, he's showing that the Torah itself, in and of itself, does not give you everything you need to know what the mitzvah is. What makes a bird permitted? What makes it not permitted? What's the definition of a tchum? How far can a person walk on Shabbos? How can on Shabbos? What 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 defines which work is mutter and and aser on Shabbos? Why is aser to use a pen? But you can carry something heavy, etc. Why are you not allowed to ride animals on Shabbos? So basically, a bunch of examples. He says he says try to try to adjudicate a case of monetary law just based on the psukim in Eila Mishpatim. And he says it won't work. So clearly, you need alongside with the written Torah, you need a tradition about the old the oral law. How does he even know that there's an obligation to pray? Where does he get the idea of belief in reward and punishment after death? It's not explicit in the Torah. How would he adjudicate when there's a conflict between mitzvahs, for example, a bismillah and Shabbos, and so on and so forth. So he says that ultimately, ultimately, they themselves have to have some sort of tradition. And basically, the cover says that this idea that they're supposed to figure things out by themselves, how to serve God, is a very flawed idea. And in fact, people who accept rabbinical Judaism find themselves at peace and secure, while the Karayim are always at risk of being attacked and always have to keep themselves armed. Basically, in other words, we have a tradition that gives us security and comfort that we have the the true knowledge, and therefore we're not as worried as the Karayim. We're not always thinking questions and saying, hey, maybe we're wrong, maybe we have to revisit this. And in fact, the cover says, the Torah itself tells us that there has to be one law for all of us. If there's one law for all of us, according to the Quran, every person thinks for himself there's no one law for any of them. And in fact, even a same individual won't have one law because he'll always come up with new ideas. So he has this idea basically that the Torah is supposed to be uniform and constant. And the fact that the Torah itself tells us that it has to be uniform and constant indicates that there's supposed to be an adherence to a tradition. And the Karim have no way to, to reach that unless they accept an authority, such as he mentions a few of their authorities, Anon, Binyam, and Oshol. But of course, he says the Karim are not supposed to accept from authorities. Additionally, additionally, the Chachamim, Chazal, <laughs> relied on what they received from the prophets, while the Karam only rely on their own Sora. And here's another major point that he addresses further. He says, the Chachamim Chazal, they reached, they, they achieved their wisdom, attained their wisdom, min ha-mokam asher yivcha Hashem. They were in the Lishka Sagazas, they were connected to the Beis HaMikdash. This is a point that he raises further that the Chazal that we rely on had divine inspiration and there's no com- comparison between them and a, a Chacham of today. And therefore that's what makes their 
decisions binding, as we'll see more soon. Then he goes again, he gives examples of things that the Karam can't know. Um, for example, what day of the month it is, how do they how can they be sure, and so other examples like that. So he says, going back to that point, he says, our Torah follows halacha Moshe Misinai, either directly back from Sinai, or menamokam Mashiv Hashem, and this again back back the idea of the centrality of Eretz Yisrael, even the Torah. The reason why Chazal have authority is because they were connected to the Mokam, to the place that Hashem chose, and were commanded to listen to the people that are the authorities who are in the base Hamikdash. There was the worship in the Beis Hamikdash, the Sanhedrin, the Mishmaris, and the Davar Allah. He was connected to them. Now, in the, either they had prophecy, but even after prophecy ceased, that is to say, during the second temple, they had aid from heaven and a light, enlightenment. So it's a very important point that they had Siyata de Shemayo and they had Ruach HaKodesh. And therefore, such people, such people, firstly, are reliable and are not tricking us. Additionally, it's a very important point he says here, which I think the Rambam in Hachaz alludes to this, the Rebuta Levi says, that the reason why we have the mitzvahs of Megillah and Purim and Chanukah, and we can make a bracha of Vitzivanu al-Mikr Megillah lahad l'Kanesha Chanukah, and we can make a brachas on these mitzvahs, is because these were not, these mitzvahs were not developed after Golos. Any mitzvah that, that began after Golos, after Bayashini, would not require us to make a bracha. They would be called a minig or a takana. But because these mitzvahs were done during the Bayashani, when there was, if not prophecy, there was still the Ruach HaKodesh of um, Baskal, what the Gemara Numa calls it, but Rudal Levi calls it a, an aid from heaven and enlightenment from Shemayim, then therefore they still had the ability to create new mitzvahs. The Rambam and Yom Tev talks about Yom Tev Shani being a minig shenagu begolos, or something maybe that began in Golos. So the Rambam makes this differentiation between Something that began in Golas and something that began during Bayashani, which perhaps is based on this, on Rebut Levi makes this distinction. And we'll see soon that he says it's very important, this distinction. He says that most of the mitzvahs are developed on Halacha Moshe Sinai, because during the 40 years in the desert, and at the Shkira with them, of certainly when they were taught about the mitzvahs, they also were taught about the details of the mitzvahs. And other mitzvahs, so that means most of our mitzvahs can be traced back to that Messiah. Those that are new, those are from the place that Hashem has chosen, and that the place that Hashem chose, the base of Mikdash, under those conditions, while there was uh, the worship. And there was prophecy until 40 years into the Bayashani. And Yirmiyah Hanavi says, this is Nimr Perk of Tess, Perk Lama Aleph, talks about the greatness of the people who are going to return to Israel, how wonderful they're going to be, how wise and pious. So then we can certainly rely on that. Even mitzvahs that were developed after the Torah says, they become part of the Torah. And he gives a bunch of examples that Shlomo HaMalach brought Karbonus outside of the Mizbeach, made a Chag seven and seven days. Domna and Shmuel are the ones that arranged the, the orders of the singers in the bias. Um, Ezra made Shisha Shekel. And they had an Oren. Instead of the Oren, they had, we could, in this Bayashani, they had a Proichis, knowing that the Oren was placed. So basically, he says that the Oren was hidden there. Basically, he says there were changes after the Torah. And here, the, the king says to him, wait a second, doesn't the Torah say, you're not allowed to add or detract from the Torah? And here, Buddha says a very interesting Kiddush. 
that the when the Torah says not to add or detract, that means that the Hamoin people cannot add and detract based on their own smarts, which is what the Quran do. Rather, rather, you can only accept from the prophets and also from the Kahanim and the judges, as the Pasuk says about the prophets to listen to the prophets, and the Kahanim and the Shaykh, the judges says, listen to what they say. So if we don't add means don't add to anything that was made either by Moshe or a prophet based on the rules of prophecy or something that the judges and the Kahanim who rule from the place of Hashem will choose the base on Mikdash. Something that they add to the Torah. Because they receive aid from the Shechina. They receive help from the Shechina. So the Torah is saying not to add to the Torah means not to add to the Torah that and and and, and to those things which are allowed to be um, developed. Or not really added to the Torah. It's still part of the Torah because the Torah could expand by based on the Nevi'im and the Kahanim and Shechim even throughout the Second Temple. So it's an amazing thing. Yudah Levi is giving this great power to Chazal because they were connected to the base of Mikdash. Because they were so numerous too, he says, they certainly cannot, could not have agreed to something that is opposed to the Torah. And we also assume that they could not err because they have such great wisdom. Some of it they inherited and some of them because of their nature, some of it due to their great work. So he says, basically, they were so great and they were connected, they were so great and they were connected. So therefore we assume they didn't err and they were connected to the place that Hashem chooses. And therefore the Torah says, we well, have to listen to them. So that's why you see it's very important according to Rudolf Levi, the uh, t- period of the Bayes Shani, which is basically more or less aligns with the period of the Tanaim. Um, and I say that it's obviously very roughly based on Mikdash was destroyed 150 years before the end of the Tukufasat Tanaim, give or take. But um, I believe those two things actually line up. And, and until the end of the Tukufasat Tanaim is considered the era of the second Beis HaMikdash. It's not the place to go into this. Um, my upcoming Sefer, Haaretz Shareka, I deal with this. But anyways, Buddha Levi is saying that the Tanarim are very special, very unique um, in their having a connection to the Beis HaMikdash. Of course, that doesn't apply to the Amiroim. But that's just the development of the Mishnah. So again, back to uh, the, the the text of the Sefer, he says, um, he's talking about how wise the Sanhedrin when he says, we have this tradition that the Sanhedrin had to know all the wisdom of Shlemos, Completely plus, plus he says, the why, why is it so important for them to know the wisdom? Because it's only rarely that they had prophecy or the baskoil that would stand in this place. So they did have this baskoil, but it wasn't common. So therefore they had to have the complete wisdom. And then he says a fascinating thing. And he takes one of the great controversies about um, Karoit and Rabbinic Judaism. He says, even if the Karoim are right about Counting sphere, right? The Quran say that the Pasuk says to count sphere in Machras Shabbos, so they have to Shabbos, and therefore the sphere has to start on a Sunday. Say the Karayim. Um, and therefore, Shuas always has to be on a Sunday too. So he says an amazing thing. He says, even if that's true, that that's the Pasuk meant, okay, maybe. But the fact is, one of the Shaiftim, or the Kahanim, or the good kings, explained the Pasuk to mean. The day after Yom Tiv. And he talks about that the Pasuk saying Shabbos might just be an example. The point is, he says, even if the original, oh, let's call it the original intention was to say the day after Sunday, the day after Sunday, but but the judges or the Kahanim or the king, who the Torah tells us to listen to, right? The Torah says to listen to the judge. It's the place that Hashem chooses. So then 
if that's what they determine and that doesn't contradict the Torah, then we have to, we are obligated to accept that. And then he says, and perhaps, an amazing thing, perhaps it was a prophecy from Hashem that that's the meaning, which is certainly possible, he says. And that's that. And this, by the way, if you compare this to the Ramah Shita about, number one, the role of Nebuah in the Torah, which is non-existent according to Rambam, and therefore the correlator, which is that Paltaisif according to Rambam, means that no Navi could add to the Torah. It's very, very different than this this passage of the Kusri. So you have to compare the Rida Levi Shita and the Ramah Shita's manner. So the king says, you know, in general, you're saying, I, I, I appreciate what you're saying. And the Kavar says back to him, you know, once you accept this in general, don't worry about the details. Once you get the general idea, you should accept it and don't worry, don't don't bother with the details, except that the, that the truth is with the rabbinical Judaism and you don't have to answer every single question. The king says, okay, but there are some details that bother me. For example, Ayin Tachzayin, Teres is an eye for an eye, and then you go ahead and you do money. So he answers, he says, he gives example, he says, well, there's other Pesukim that indicate um, that it means money. And of course, he gives that example, he says, how could you do an eye for an eye? One of them might die for that. And it won't be quite exactly equal. So he says it has to be equal. Okay, fine. But again, he says, he the Chabar the ends by saying, I don't want to go into the details. I told you that we have to accept the tradition and that the, the people who gave us the tradition are so trustworthy that we should just accept it and, and, and not bother with the details. And the king says to him, okay, but look, you know one thing I like about the Quran? They're so careful with Tumah. So this is an interesting thing. I don't know about the history of this at the Quran. We're very concerned with Tumah. The Chavar says, Tumah and Kedusha have a relationship with each other. There's no one without the other. If there's no Kedusha, there's no Tumah. So therefore, meaning only where there's holiness, such as the temple, such as eating Karbanis, that's where this idea of Tumah, which is the only Tumah means, Tumah just means not to touch, well, the idea of Tumah is only not to touch those things that are consecrated, those things that are holy, Holy for God, like the Kahanim, their food, the Besam Mikdash. And Kedusha also means that the person who has Kedusha can't touch just anything. They can't touch things that are Tameh. Most of these things, says Rita Levi, depend on when the Shechina was amongst us. Now we don't have it. And therefore, even with the things that we have left from Tumah, for example, not touching a Nida or a woman who had a baby, is not related to Tumah. They're rather mitzvahs from God, nothing to do with Tumah. They said we don't eat with them and stay away from them is a siyag to avoid um, touching. But we don't have Tumah because anyways we are in our unholy land, that's let's say in exile. And ear that is impure, we live in, in, among graves and shratzim and mitzrayim and zavim and dead people and that's it. Even the vela, dead animal, we can't eat not because it's Tumah, the, the, the main mitzvah is not to eat it, the Tumah is an additional thing. Even the fact that about Kerry goes to the mikvah, he says, if not for the fact that Chazal said Ezra made this, we would just do it not as a mitzvah, we would just say a minig of, of cleanliness. And if the Karayim would accept it just because of cleanliness and not consider it a mitzvah, that's fine. But since, he says, since they do it as a mitzvah, then it's considered like they're changing the Torah and they leave to minus. Because what's the minus? That each, that's a sectarianism, each one has his own opinion. And that itself, see, this is a very important idea, by the way, which people don't think of enough, I think, um, that the sectarianism, everyone having their own law, is breaking the principle of Torah Achas Mishpat Echod. We're supposed to have one law, and therefore everyone thinking of themselves leads to this kind of each man having his own halacha. Even so, it's very interesting. He says even the Karans claim that we're mekel and we're not we're, we're not strict about touching, and they consider that an evil. Says Bidalevi, that's not close to the evil 
that they reach to by having all these various opinions. You could have 10 karam in the same house and they could have 10 different opinions and that's not a good thing. So that's something we should learn from today, I think, about the idea of you having uniformity in practice is very important. It's a major principle in the Torah. Okay. Now, and he gives other examples which the karam are wrong about and are more makel when they should be machmer. Okay. Then he goes into a very interesting thing and it's a little hard to understand. It's a subtle. I don't can't say I'm sure I understand it perfectly, but he goes into the idea that there are certain things in Chazal which um, Chazal say there's a chumra. It's better to be not eaten. For example, meat that was an animal that was slaughtered because it was almost dying. So lahalacha it's mutter because we're not sure the animal's going to die. It's not like a trefa. While the trefa has within it something mortal, a mortal wound. Um, but he says, he says that's not logical. In other words, an animal that's basically fully alive but happens to have a mortal wound that you know it's going to die soon, that's a trefa. And that's usher to eat. But an animal that's dying and has no mortal wound per se is mortal to eat. And, and logic would tell us the opposite. So that tells us then, he says, that um, we can't follow just logic. But however, he says, Chazal tell us that it's not ideal, it's not a good thing to eat that kind of meat. Okay, so he says Chazal are able to determine what the logic of the laws, let's say, but also what the logic of, of what's appropriate is within the confines of, of the law. In other words, what's an appropriate kind of Chumrah. And he gives, by the way, he gives examples of other things that the mind can't fathom or go against logic. For example, um, we can't think of something being div div uh, divided infinitely, but logically we can. We know that. You know, that it could be logically we know that the earth is round but it's hard to think of it that way so he's saying so basically not everything follows the way we think about things or common sense so to Chazal have a way of approaching things and their way is based on the wisdom that they received if you don't really work with their kind of logic it's going to be strange so basically he's saying it's got its own the law the law of Chazal has its own kind of logic and doesn't fit into what you might call common sense. So Chazal are ones who can tell us within the law of what's appropriate, what's permitted or forbidden, and then within that what's appropriate. For example, don't eat that meat that's about to die, but you could make an Erev to go out of the Trum, even though it seems to be a getting around the law, like a loophole. You could be Mater and Neder, even though that seems to be going against the spirit of law. So basically you have some halachas which seem to be going against the spirit of law and some halachas that embrace the spirit of law and you have to really have the legal, the halacha kind of logic to know when to apply that. Okay. And those are like the two prongs. In other words, you have to have one hand have, um, you have to one hand have, uh, know the halacha, know what's permitted and forbidden. And then you have to have this other approach of knowing what what are when is when is it appropriate to be machmer and not completely just follow on the, the halacha? So he says like this: he says the rabbani, the king accepts that the rabbani, the people of rabbinic Judaism, is um, superior to the karoi, who's always concerned, never sure, and always relying really on himself. And he says, you know, if it's all about working hard, there's other people that work hard to serve God. That point he said earlier. Then he says, but the king says, I don't like the Erov. How does an Erov allow you to carry? So the so the king Chavar explains to him, which is interesting. Like, why did he have why did the, the author of this book, I mean, the lady, have the king make this error that 
they're really carrying from is not based on the Torah. Shlomo Hamalach did it, and um, and the same Chazal who made this Isser also said that the Erev could be Mutter, and this way they'll know that there's essentially some problem here, but we got around. So the king says, okay, yeah, but how could an Erev combine two Rishis? How could just putting some bread and a chutz to combine it? And the king says, this is very interesting about Lamdas, he says, he says, you know, if you don't understand that, then you understand mitzvahs in general. Because how do you accept kinyanim, the way you could, the way a marriage is affected, very specifically, the way a divorce is affected, it has to be in a very specific way. Um, all sorts of laws of Taras, the Kohen has to say, Tamei Otahar. Mishka needs Shemin HaMishcha. The Kahanim need the Meluim in order to become Kahanim. So basically, every single thing only happens through a very specific way. How did B'nai Yisrael get blessed? Because the Kahanim say these words, Because, again, at the same point, we cannot know the parameters of what exactly it takes to get this collection of Dabra Lucky. And the same thing we see in nature. Can't know again. We said this before, and he goes back to the people who who tried to the alchemists who tried to uh, find the natural heat, and they think they can make they can make metals through that. And really, we can't know enough about that. And he says also pits of spiritualists who tried to get involved in spiritual actions through incantations. What happened was they observed the Bnei Yisrael who having um, spiritual revelations through bringing uh, carbonus. And they thought, okay, that the prophets and the people who did this just were smart and figured out how to do it. And they said, well, let's figure it out too. Okay? Or they saw a Navi who said certain things and affected a miracle. They say, okay, apparently then, they thought that we can figure out what words to say, what shame is, and make miracles. But, but he says, you can't copy this. You have to have this command and be part of that, part of that Messiah who accepted this command. Know, and know the Torah that leads to it. And he gives examples about this. He says, you know, there are things in nature which you would be shocked. You don't, you, you don't know how they work. You just know that they do work. For, and he gives an example similarly in, in religion. You slaughter an animal, get all dirty by skinning it, rinsing it off, chopping it up, spraying its blood, spreading the, setting up the wood, lighting a fire. And if not for the fact that God commanded you, you would say, this is terrible. How could this bring you close to God? But then you do this and a fire appears from heaven or you find in yourself another spirit that you didn't have to know or you start having true dreams or miracles so you know okay apparently apparently these kinds of actions bring you to this greatness so you accept it like we accept in nature certain things that we do that have certain effects and we don't necessarily understand how the only way to approach god is through his mitzvahs and the only way to know his mitzvahs is through prophecy not logic because there is no connection between us and those mitzvahs except for this tradition, the true tradition. The people who gave us the tradition were not individuals. They were a great congregation, great wise people who accepted it from the prophets. And even from the prophets, they got it from the Levium, the Kahanim and the Levium in the 70s Akkadim. Always do as Messiah. So here the king asserted that the tradition was never broken and the the, 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 the Kuzri, I'm sorry, the Chavar asserted that the tradition was never broken. And the king says back to him, but didn't the people in the second temple forget the Torah? Because they didn't know about the mitzvah of sukkah, as the Pasuk says. The Pasuk said they found written that they have to make sukkahs, and they found written that no one could marry an Amoyim Ravi, indicating that they forgot this. And the cover says, well, then according to that logic, we're, we're, we're greater than them because we know the Torah. And the king says, yes, that's what I'm saying. And the cover says, well, we wouldn't be able to bring a carbon if we had to. 
And yet they came into the Bayashani and they built the Mizbech and they must have known exactly how to do it. Right? Because you can't build a bias and you can't build a temple and bring sacrifices to God without knowing exactly how to do it. So how did they know all that? And then you're saying they didn't know a mitzvah of sukkah? How could that be? So the king says, okay, good point. But the Pasuk says they discovered written, Pasuk says in Sefer Ezra, they discovered written in Nehemiah, they discovered written in the Torah that they have to make a sukkah. And they said, oh, well, Torah says that we have to make a sukkah. It sounds like it was forgotten. So the, the cover tells him a very interesting thing, a very uh, interesting approach to Tanakh. He says, the narrators, the people who are telling us the history in Tanakh, talk about it from a perspective that's well-known. They don't talk about things that are hidden to people. For example, when he talks about Yeshua, he doesn't say a word about the fact that Yeshua received wisdom from God and from Moshe. All he says is that Yeshua split the sea, the, the, the river, Jordan River, and that the sun stopped. The stories of Shimshon and the Vayra, it never talks about their wisdom, Never talks about what they did according to the Torah. It talks about, for example, let's talk about Shlomo. It talks about his great court, his, his meals, and how wealthy he was. And even how, how wise was Shlomo. What do we know about Shlomo's wisdom? Just that story of the two Zionists and the baby. Why? Because that was something well known. But what exactly was the wisdom that he demonstrated to the Queen of Shiva? doesn't say. Why? Because the author of Tanakh is writing about things that are known to the masses. Or that relate to the masses, the unique, the elite kind of stories that only elite people would understand. We have very few of them. Only very few of them. Just like he says, just like from Nevuah, the only thing we have left of Nevuah. This is another interesting point. Which parts of the prophets do we have left? Things that people learned, studied by heart because of, because they were able to. Similarly, from the book story of Sayyid and Nehemiah, the only thing that was written are things that were well known to the masses. So everyone knew about the fact that they made sukkahs. So, oh, it, was a, it was a very famous day. They went up and they got they collected um, wood for the sukkahs. So Vayim Tzukasav, when it says that they found written, it means the masses heard this mitzvah and they said, let's make sukkahs. The Yechid and the elite never forgot any detail of the mitzvahs. So the, the, so the story is like this. The, the, the writer of the Nehemiah is saying, is writing from the perspective of the masses, not from the perspective of the elite. And he's saying, oh, the masses discovered this thing, which of course the elite, of course, knew because they knew the whole Torah. So the king says to him, okay, I want to hear more about the tradition. Tell me exactly how the tradition went. Um, what was the path of tradition? So the king tells him, the cover tells him that for 40 years into the second bias, there was still Nevoah. And that's because there was old prophets who had illumination from the Shekhinah in the first bias. And this is an important idea. He says that the, the Shekhinah only dwelt in the first bias. So only in the first bias was there prophecy that was given from one prophet to the next. From then on, it only appeared very rarely, only people like Avraham, Moshe, Elion, Mashiach, who are they themselves are dwelling for the Shekhinah. I mean, the first bias was dwelling for the Shekhinah, so anyone could, could get prophecy by connection to the bias. But after that, you know, only the person himself has to be a dwelling to the Shekhinah. Okay, so in the second beginning of the second bias, there's still have people who were the old Zikinim, Haggis, Malachi, and Ezra from who and he's actually says and Ezra who were there at the saw the first bias. After those forty years there were the wise men who were called the Anshiknes Sagadila. Those are the ones who came to it. So together with Zubavel, they received the tradition from the Nevi'im. Then there was a generation of Shimon at Sadek, then Antignus, his students with Sadukobaisis, who start who because of them the sects called the Tzadukim of Susan developed, and then Yaisi Ben Yaisi Ben and he mentions things about them. Then Yeshua ben Prachya, who his student was Yeshu the Christian, Nita Arbeli, Yehuda ben Tavshim ben Shetach. That's when 
the sect of the people who deny the oral law started. So it's not the Tzadik it's the Karoim, he says, started the days of Shemet Shetach, the story with Yanai, because Yanai was a Kayan, and there was a question about his mother, Sigmar Kedushin, that his mother may be a Chalolo. So one of the kings told him, you know, one of the, why the Chacham told me not fit to be a Kayan. And because of that, Yanai's friends told him, just forget about the Chachamim. And he said, what about the Torah? They said, just, you have the Torah You don't need the oral law. And that's when this idea started. When they tried to do some mitzvahs, they couldn't. And this is the Gemara Brachas, where you need Shem and Shatach to teach him how to bench. And the point, the point is, Buda Levi is reading that story as saying that, look, what happens when you try to develop the Torah without the Torah Shavah that's when Shimon Shetach was brought back from Alexandria and his students and the Messiah, the tradition went back to its original state. They're different, he says, than the Tzadukim and Basusim. Tzadukim and Basusim denied Elam Habba. And when we pray in davening for the downfall of the Minim, we mean the people who deny Elam Habba. Yeshu and his friends are the Mishu Omadim that were joined the Baptist people of Torah and the Yardin. The Karoim, however, he says, accept the basics of the Torah. They just trying to be smart and figure things out themselves, as we said. But they're not intending to change the base of the Torah. Then comes Shmai and Italian, Hillel and Shammai. Hillel, he says, and we know how wise and humble he was. He was descendant of David. He lived at 120. The great, he had a hundred thousand of Tavidim. And um, the Gemara says in Sukkah, how he had 80 Tavidim, 30 could, were, were deserved of the Shechina. The greatest was, was Yechon Samazil. The smallest was Yechon Mezakai. And that's the Gemara about everything of Yechon Mezakai. No. His student was Meliezer. Biachan Mazakai, who was still saw the second bias, lived 120 years. His students were Meliezer and Hurkanis, who wrote the Pickard of Meliezer, which is all about astronomy. He seems to have had more in the Pickard than we do about that, and that focused on astronomical wisdom. His students also, Rishmal Ben Elisha Koyengal, that's Rishmal of the Hecholis, and of Maisa Merkava. He knew the secrets. He was close to the level of Navua, and that's why, as the Gemara says in Brachis, he so he was close to the level of Navua. His Talmudim of Balazim Hanzak were also the great Yeshua, read the stories with Maliel, Rabbi Yaisi, Akkoyin, Balazim Ben Arach. Besides for this, besides for these people, these these famous people, and besides for all the Chacham and the Kahanim, there was also the Shivim Sanhedrin, 70 Sanhedrin, who, who gave over the wisdom from one generation to the next. And those 70, 70 were backed up by hundreds and thousands. Because to get 70 people with such great knowledge, you must have 100 people who are close to them, and so on and so forth. Then there are Bekiva, Rabtafim, Rizaglili, all after the Hormon. And Bekiva was close to the level of Navua. He had a connection with the spiritual world, as the Gemara text teaches about him that four people entered the Pardes, and Bekiva entered in peace and left peace. Now he explains what happened to all them. One looked and died, which means, he says, he couldn't stand the splendor of that great world, so he felt he, he his body fell apart. The second one became went crazy, um, lost his mind, and spoke about metaphysics, things that divine matters, things that were pointless, made no sense. And the third one is Acher, and this is Buddha's interpretation is that he rejected the actions of mitzvahs after he recognized the world of the intellects. He said, he said the whole purpose of mitzvahs is only to bring us to spiritual level, and I reached there. I don't need the Mitzvah, the practice of mitzvahs anymore. Mikiva was um, unharmed. He was worthy of having the Shekhinah, but his generation wasn't. His generation, time wasn't appropriate for that. He was killed, and his story with Kriyashma, of course.
<coughs> afterwards in the same generation where Meir Buda Beisim Shimon Azab Chaim Tadian, the next one was Rabbi. That's a Buda Kaddish, Rabbi Nakaddish, Buda Nasi. Together with him, Rabbi Nasi and Shimon Karcha. Those are the end of the Chachmei Mishnah called Tanoim. Afterwards, the Amram the Balei Talmud, the Mishnah he says was arranged um, in the year five hundred thirty of the Count of Staris. By the way, that that's what starts from the Greek Kingdom forty years into Baisheni, which is one hundred fifty years after the destruction of the Second Temple which is 530 years after the end of prophecy. In the Mishnah, all the stories uh, were, are, that we just alluded to, only a few of them are brought. The Chum were very careful with the Nusach of the Mishnah, just like the original Chum were careful about the Nusach of the Torah. They counted how many Starma the Mishnah, how many Prakim, how many Halachis. And it's so exact that it's hard to think that anything was made up. There's many things in the Mishnah that don't come from Tanakh, and because it's so perfect and beautiful, uh, there's no doubt, it's very clear that a human being would not be able to do this without a divine aid. The only one who rejected it is someone who doesn't understand it or, or, or study it. And if you only hear from the Chachamim things that they said, as Jerush is in front of the masses, here he's dealing with certain things that you find in Chazal that, that don't seem to make sense. He says, yeah, well, you know what, if you just hear those and you don't study the Mishnah, then you might reach a different conclusion. Um, about the greatness of the Chachamim. And you see how much they relied on Nevuah. He quotes that they had a Messiah from Ramayasha, from the Zugas, back to the Nevi'im, back to Allah Sinai. And they were so careful if they only heard something from an individual, they didn't accept it that way. And that shows you how great the mission is. What about things in the Talmud? So he says, you know, there might be things there which today don't we don't seem right to us, but they were good in that generation. So, so what's he referring to? So the king says to him, he says, look, you know, in general I see what he's saying, but... I look at the Talmud and they sometimes explain Pesukim in ways that defy logic. And it's clear that's not what the Pesukim meant. And there are stories in the Talmud, and I got this in the Talmud, that logic tells us are not true. So the cover argues the following. He says, look how careful they are when they're analyzing a mission and a Bryce. So you see they're so detailed, so careful, right? And the king says, you know, I realize, yes, that they, that they are beyond any debating skills. That's for sure true. So the Chavah says back to him, well, you think people are so careful and know how to analyze a text, you think they don't understand what we understand of a Pasuk? And the king admits that that's impossible. So it must be that we don't understand how they explain the Torah. Or, or, the same people that were analyzing Mishnah weren't explaining the Torah. That's not true. That's not true. So it must be we don't know about that. So the king says to him, the Chavah says to him, yes, you know, either they had ways to interpret the Torah that we don't know. Some secrets. Or they're sometimes talking about psukim, they're just using it as nasmachta, which is just a simon to something that they knew. By the way, the Ritva argues with this. He says nasmachta is much more meaningful than that, according to Bidolevi, and the Rambam says it too, and nasmachta is just a memory aid for a law that they knew otherwise. And he gives examples of asmachtas that is not the meaning of the Pasuk, and they're just they're just using it to remember that. What about certain agaditas? So he says. Sometimes they're just saying, um, let's say they talk about God as being a body. They're just doing that to strengthen the belief that Yitzhak's time came directly from God. And we always say that kavyochel, as it were, but we don't certainly mean that, literally. Sometimes they talk about things they saw in a vision. And he says, it's not surprising that, they, that they're such pious people should see things in visions like the prophets did. Like we heard earlier during the Baishen, they had Baskel, they had a voice from heaven which is one level below visions and words from God. So when Rishmael says, I heard a baskel moaning like a dove, 
uh, we have our Piyasi in the Gemara Brachas, he quotes from Bishmal. So you shouldn't think that's strange because we know that Moshe and Leo had such visions. Sometimes that Gadotar are parables for secrets of wisdom that they can't reveal because the masses can't understand them and they're just for individuals. Some Agadas don't seem to make sense, but if you think about them deeply, they can figure them out. He gives some examples of that, things you have to understand them, you have to interpret them. And then he says, I won't deny, King, that in the Talmud there are things that I can't explain to you. I can't fit into what I'm telling you now. These statements were inserted into the Talmud by students that kept the rule of even anything that their masters say has to be studied, and anything that they heard, they would record, even if they didn't understand it. And they said, well, this is what he said. Perhaps there was some hidden, hidden meaning. And that's how we have the record of these statements. And we don't know what it means. But that's only regarding matters that don't relate to the law. And we could just ignore those matters. That is the end of the third essay. And the king admits that the Chavar indeed strengthened his belief in the tradition in rabbinical Judaism. And now he says, I want you first, I'm going to tell you about the wisdoms that you mentioned, that Chazal had great wisdom and the Sanhedrin had great wisdom. But first, I want you to talk to me a little bit more about the names of God. And here we're at the beginning of the fourth essay. And here, Ridal Levi will tell us about the meanings of the names of Hashem and very important ideas about our relationship with Hashem. So he goes, launches into names at the beginning of the fourth essay. He says, the word Elohim means a ruler. A judge and you could talk about the judge the power the, the one who has the power <clears throat> over the whole world or any force in nature is also called an elohim or even a judge over people is called an elohim the reason why we say elohim in plural when referring to hashem gods because it used to be he says it used to be that the pagans thought there were various forces in the world and each force they considered a god a power Either they didn't believe there was one first force from which all those forces come. They denied it. They said there's just a bunch of different forces. Each one is a little cat. Like the soul, this is an analogy that Buddha Levi goes to many times, that if one doesn't believe in the soul as being distinct from all the forces of the body, one won't believe in a God that's distinct from all the, distinct from all the forces in the world. So he says they believe that the soul was nothing more than just the totality of the forces of the body and, they, and also in the world they believe that all there, there is are all the various forces that exist and there's no force from which they will derive or they believe that there's no purpose in serving him because he's separate from this world and doesn't control it but and therefore they, they only worship the many gods they call them Elohim the gods and we say God Hashem is actually the root force of all those forces and therefore he gets that name Elohim. The, the name Kael comes from power and we can talk about because we mean all the other powers are not like God. However the name Yudke Vavke that's the name of Hashem himself. It's a proper noun which we allude to Hashem. Now we say what do you mean we allude to Hashem? Not that he's in a place He's going to go into this, how do you allude to Hashem? We'll get to that soon. But it's not a generic name like the word Lekim. It's a specific name. It's Meyuchid. It's unique to Hashem. As if someone to say, okay, which God do you worship? Which force? Should we worship the sun, the moon, the, the, the heavens, 
stars, fire, etc., they all have power. The answer is Hashem, meaning that's the one you're calling him by name, as if you'd say Reuben and Shimon when you're referring to a certain person. But of course, he says you can only say Reuben and Shimon if you know Reuben and Shimon. So the king says to the Chavar, well, how could you use a name, proper noun for Hashem? How can we call him by name if we don't have a connection to him? And here's very major point that the Chavar says, well, we do have a connection to him through prophecy. Not through logic. And here his point is the following, that again, this idea that he mentioned earlier, that you don't reach Hashem through thought, because people used proofs and they reached the wrong conclusion. People who believe that the world is eternal reached that conclusion through thinking. People worship the sun through thought. And again, this is a Buddha Levi's anti-philosophy in saying that, that that human thought in and of itself cannot guarantee that you reach the truth. He says the best ones were the philosophers, but even them, even they reached the conclusion that God doesn't know anything about this world and that the world is eternal. So clearly then, says Buddha Levi, you can't, um, with thought alone, you can't reach the truth. So this that's what prophecy is for. And in prophecy, we behold Hashem. So then we could use the word Hashem to refer to that which is known, because he's known to the prophets. So here we put prophecy in, in the center of our relationship with Hashem, according to Buddha Levi. Because the prophets are the ones who have a direct connection, a direct knowledge of, or experience of Hashem, and they could even re- therefore refer to him by name. The philosophers, he says, meaning even if they'll prove God, they won't have a name for God. Only if you heard the words of God and you experience his ashkacha and his reward and punishment, then you could refer to something that you're familiar with. with, And you could call him by name. The first one was Adam. If God wouldn't have spoken to him and given him reward and punishment and chose Chav for him, he wouldn't have recognized Hashem directly and he wouldn't have had a name for him. But since he did have that experience, he gave him a name. Otherwise, he would have just called him God. In fact, he says he would have called him gods, plural, because he wouldn't have known, is it one or is it many? And when there's a connection between that one and all the things that are. Afterwards, King Pan and Hevel, they only knew Hashem directly because they accepted something from their father, but then, because he revealed himself to them, to them too. Afterwards, it's Noach, Amit Zegenyakiv, to Moshe and Levim. So again, you see how history or experience is central to Buddha Levi's theology. Because the name Hashem, as being the specific name of Hashem, which we call it the proper name, is only appropriate because of a relationship, experiential relationship, with Hashem. The people um, that were not on the level of Moshe Avram Bitzik, but they accepted the Messiah, why did they call him Hashem? Because they experienced him through the cover, the Shechin of the Malchus. The light, which are which served as proof to them, they knew, they saw that those great individuals were in fact hearing things from Hashem. So they called the covet. The sometimes they call it Hashem. The Aaron could be called Hashem. Sometimes the connection. So what he's saying is that as long as it's something tangible that represents something, we can use this proper noun. In fact, the, something more abstract. The connection between Hashem, Benayisol, and the God, sometimes called Hashem. The word Kaddish indicates that God is transcends any attribute. And even though we do use attributes, it's it's in the it's it's only we borrow the term. So the three times Kaddish means he's completely Kaddish 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 it means he completely transcends the impurities of the nation. And that's why Ishaya saw him in that vision on the throne. 
so um, the word Kedosh Yisrael, the Holy One of Yisrael, means that the Yaakov Yisrael, named Yisrael, connected to the Kadosh. And the connection there, how can you connect to a Kadosh? Kadosh means he's transcendental. But it means a connection of providence, but not another kind of connection of touch. Now he says a very important point that not everyone could call Hashem my God. Not everyone truly has this relationship with Hashem, right? See, since the relationship with Hashem is prophecy, it's predicated on prophecy, so not everyone could call Hashem my God. The reason why everyone else who's not a prophet or a chassid, a level below prophet, that connects to Dabar Lucky, the reason why everyone else could say the words my God is only because we are accepting that tradition. Okay. And then he says, then he goes into the nation of Bnei Yisrael, Kedosh Yisrael, Hashem is called the Holy One of Yisrael. Only Hashem had this connection. Only the nation of Yisrael had this connection to Hashem. And even if other nations followed Hashem and worshipped Him, He never accepted them. And He didn't control them with the Divine Providence. Only we were controlled in that way. And the passage says, Only we are controlled by Hashem, meaning only we, only our destiny depends on how our relationship with Hashem. And therefore, we only have, we're the only nation that has a shame, HaMiyuchad, Yudkevavke, is Miyuchid. It's special for us because we're the only ones who are able to relate to Hashem with a proper noun because we had this experience of Him. The other ones can only call Him God. Now, he says, What does the word Yudkevavke mean? He says, Well, the secret is hidden. But the letters are the vowels. Yud and He and Vav, and he adds Aleph too from Ekyash Ekyash. Those are the vowels, because all words, all consonants need these vowels. So then the vowels are like the souls that bring the letters, the dead letters, to life. So therefore, those are the letters that are chosen for the name of Hashem. The name Ka is similar to that. So to Ekyash is similar to that. Could be, he says, Ekyash means from I will be. And the point is that you shouldn't think about what God is because you can't. So I will be what I will be means you will, just like now, um, I am coming to save you. I will be with you whenever it's necessary. And don't try to understand what I am. Just know that I am there. So that's how he understands it. Um, that Eki is telling them, don't try to understand what God is. All you have to know is that he that something comes to you from him. Now the word Aleph Dalid, name Aleph Dalid is referring to Hashem when we could behold him, when we could turn to something. Now what does it mean turn to something? What does it mean turn to something? God is not in something. So he says he, he, he says like this, he says that, let's say you talk about the intellect. We talk about the intellect, we say the intellect is in the heart or in the brain, even though the intellect actually doesn't take up space, but because the intellect controls the mind first and everything else goes through the mind. Similarly, we say that God is in the heaven because the heavens are controlled directly by God without any intermediary. And we can call the Amud, the pillar of cloud, or the pillar of fire, we can call it Hashem. And we say God is there. And what that means is, what does that mean that God is there? What that means is that this pillar, unlike other pillars of cloud, clouds are usually controlled by the wind. So they're controlled by God, but only through a series, a causal series, of chain, a chain of, of, of causes. If there's something controlled directly by God's will, then we say God is there. Just like the, just like we talk about the person, we say, let's say, that the um, 
says we say that the eye sees, even though it's really the soul that sees. So we basically conflate the power behind it with the thing itself. And we can even talk about the Nevi'im, the prophets, we can even call them God. Why? Because anything that's controlled by God's will, without anything else, we say God is there. And we can call him a man of God, which means he's like composite. Between, he's half God, half man. Now, so going back to the word Aleph Dalet, the name Aleph Dalet, and then Nun Yud, that's referring to something that's present, as if he's in front of you. Okay, then he says, I have to talk about this a little more. You say, how can we talk about where God is present? He doesn't have a space. So he goes into his lengthy discussion about how we ever perceive anything. He says, the senses always, we only perceive things through the senses. And all we perceive about the senses is not what the thing is, but we perceive some of its attributes. And from that, we develop a sense of what the thing is. And yet we don't differentiate between our sensory perception and the thing itself. So too, right, and we use the clues that we get from sensory perception to determine what the thing is. So too, our senses that we receive from God and what we know about him, we use that to determine what he is. But we conflate our experience of our subjective experience of God um, for what God is. And that I just really gave you a very brief, his, his, uh, a very brief summary of this deeper and more complicated argument. Now, the fact that we compare God to a human, he says, well, you know, really we should say, let's compare him to light. Because light is the most subtle. And it's the most pervasive. Okay, but if you think about God, we say we, we have to think about God as being alive and having knowledge and having um, ability and having will and control and, ju and, and just. And the thing that's most similar to that is not light. The most similar to that is the rational human soul. Right? And um, he says the philosophers, as is known, compared the world to a large human, and man to a small world, a microcosm. So if you look at it that way, then God is the spirit or the soul or the intellect or the life force of the world. And that's why it's called So that's a good analogy. And he says, certainly, the reason why we can talk about God as a human is because the prophets beheld him as a human. And in fact, the prophets, what they see through prophecy is clearer than we attain through analogy, through logical analogy. So they saw, the prophets saw the spiritual things close to God as a human, in the shape of a human. And it's those spiritual entities that the prophets beheld in the form of a human about which it says, let us make man, meaning God is talking to all the spiritual forces and saying that they all will contribute to the creation of man. So therefore we, we compare, we imagine God as a human so so god so the prophets in fact see god as a king who even judges kings and sorry sometimes he sees Hashem as being angry sometimes he sees him traveling in a chariot and that's like but that's of course all in the mind now he mentions here that the um where prophecy can, can occur. Again, back to the point of Rites Israel, from Yamsuf till Yam Plishtim, including Sinai and Paran and parts of Betrayim, as we discussed. If you reach those places, any of those places, and you're worthy of prophecy, 
according to the conditions mentioned in the Torah, you will see those very forms. So this is an idea we get to that the prophets behold certain forms that are available to be seen in that way if you meet those conditions. Just like Moshe saw the Mishkan Eliyoso, his vision, also in Eretz Yisrael. These things, says Ruda Levi, that cannot be attained through human logic, analogy, were denied by the Greek philosophers. Why? Because the Greek philosophy, the approach is that anything um, doesn't follow automatically. It's not true. But he says, but the prophets, in fact, had this experience. And there were many prophets who had the same experience. And that's why the wise people in their generations accepted, look, all these prophets are seeing the same things. Had the philosophers, says Midlavi, had the philosophers seen the prophets and the miracles, they would have accepted them and they would have looked for ways to explain how a person reaches that level. In fact, some of the philosophers, especially from other religions, said some of the philosophers did in fact try to explain prophecy. Okay. Then he talks about what the Kavod Hashem means. Either means a body that God created and takes various forms that God wants to show the prophet. Or Kavod Hashem in general means all the angels, the throne, the chariot, and so on. Also called Kavod, God's carriage, his, his entourage. And when Moshe asked to see the Kavod, it might mean that might be what he was asking to see. And Hashem told him you could see that, but not the front. You could see the back. Some things we could see of that. We could see the cloud, we could see the fire. But there are certain things that are more sublime that a prophet could see, but not past that. So that's why it says that Moshe could see the back and not the front. Sometimes, he says, see, usually the word Kavod Hashem means this thing that's a vis visible to the prophet or parts of it are visible to the prophet. Sometimes it just means nature in general, the laws of nature. It means the whole world is full of God's will through the laws of nature. But it also says means that this covet described earlier, these forms that only special people can see through the cloud and only the prophets can see some of them. And eventually it will fill the world. The whole world will see it. Even the Kaifrim will accept it. And that's when we say Malach Hashem and the Kavod Hashem will be revealed. That's what it means. It'll be something that these kinds of demonstrations that will be accepted by the whole world. And then he says, therefore, we can accept Maisim Recover. We can accept the book called Shir Kaima. Because all these, uh, the purpose of these are to impress and bring fear to people. So the king says to him, look, he says, well, why do we have to treat God as a body? Why can't we make people fear God by, by no, once they know that God is one and powerful and wise and so on? Won't they fear God without having these kinds of anthropomorphisms? And the king, the Chavah tells them that's what the philosophers see, say. But the fact is that the human psyche, the, the soul is more impressed by sensory perception than something that it knows. Just like he says, just like a person desires a beautiful woman who's present more than if she's just told, if he's just told about her. Don't believe, he says, the smart people, or the, they think they're smart, who think that they could really, only through logic alone, approach those things we can know about God and not, not requiring any symbol or sensory image just through a word. He says, not true. He says, you can't pray with just thought and not words. So with the human nature is that we need 
images and we need symbols similarly the prophet the prophet can see an image which will oppress upon him in one moment through the greatness of the image God's holiness and his control and the idea that his commands coming from him he could see that all in one moment which is going to cause him to fear and love God and it's going to make an impression for him his whole life and his whole life is going to just want to see that again second or third time but a philosopher will never reach this and the king accepts it. he says you're right because look he says thought you can't talk about two things at once you can't think about two things at once but an image can show you so much more at one shot and the cover says yeah we are like people we can't see those images so we have to accept those who had the ability to see it We're like people who can't see we have to follow the people who have the ability to see and they were able to see it in the right places at the right times for example the right times are during the days of tshuva and the right places other places chosen to actually so, so, the, so the king says to him oh so you believe in times you believe in astrology so the cover the goes into this thing about we do accept this idea that the that the world of the stars has an effect on this world too just that we and this goes back to the theme in the book that we don't claim to know it through our own logic if there's things in astrology about certain times being appropriate for certain things we seem that it relates to the Torah comes from the Torah then we accept it so even the Chacham say certain things about astrology we assume that comes from Dabar Lucky so basically we say it's like this and come back to that idea that he doesn't deny these kinds of wisdoms that people are working on themselves but he believes that we can't know the truth fully by ourselves so he finds things in the Torah he says or even Chazal he says those must be coming from the Dabar Lucky and then the king asks him about the other religions he says look the other religions also accept the truth and accept the truth about Eretz Yisrael being the place where the Nevi'im came from the gate of heaven and so on and so forth and they accept the prophecy of Mephira B'nai Yisrael and the fact that you make a pilgrimage to the holy place the Beis HaMikdosh so you know they're also connected to this whole experience so the the cover tells them look i would compare them to gerim except at least it could be like gerim right if they accept mitzvahs except the Torah, or at least partial gerim except the main except the main parts of the Torah, but not the rest of it however he says they contradict themselves by their actions because they claim to revere the place of the Israel, but in prayer they turn to places that used to be pagan and that's what he's referring to the to Mecca places where there was never a divine sign and in fact they kept the original pagan worship the same holidays the same sacrifices they just destroyed the idol the images and he says then that when the Torah says you will worship other gods wood and stone it's a remise to the revering wood the cross and the stone that's the stone in the in, in Mecca and we accept this through our sins he says you know we, we think they're like us but they're not they believe in the fact that God is one but a lot of people did like the people of Yimelech, the people of Nineveh and the philosophers so even though these two religions Christianity and Islam they accepted or originally they said that they got the divine light in Eretz Yisrael and they brought up to heaven from there originally they in fact turned to Eretz Yisrael in prayer but very quickly they started turning to another place in prayer so it's like a person that um 
claims to lead someone to the sun, and he tells them to the he leads them to the a different place of the world to the south. And it tells him here's the sun, and of course it's not there. Moshe brought the people to see with their eyes Sinai, and he saw the light, as the seventy elders did. And everyone saw it and continued following that center. The Nevi'im, and he goes back to that point about the Nevi'im all saw it together. He brings that Elisha, the story of Elisha, when Elisha was going to heaven, all the Nevi'im knew that he was going to heaven. So this was an experience. They saw the same things. They had that same experience. But the king says to them, okay, look, but the other religions are still better than the philosophers. So the so the cover says, look, yes, there's a major difference between a philosopher and a religious person. Because a religious person seeks God, not just to know God, while the philosopher just seeks to know God to know the truth, just like he wants to know the truth about, let's say, the earth, that it's a circle. Not knowing something about God is not worse than not knowing something about the earth, thinking the earth is flat, let's say. Because according to the philosopher, the purpose is only a purpose in knowing truth. And then a person becomes, actualizes his intellect. Then it doesn't matter if he believes or denies God, as long as he's a philosopher. And the philosophers say that God doesn't do good or evil to us. He also believes that the world is eternal. doesn't think that God created the world after nothing. So even though God, even though philosopher will call God the creator, he's just not using it exactly. All he means is that God is the cause of the world. So he says the philosophers, but here's the difference. So that's a major difference between a philosopher. And the religious person but he says the philosophers even though they're so diff distant from knowing god and truth according to prophecy you can't blame them because all they used was logic and logic can only bring them to, th to that and in fact he says and this is very interesting he says that the philosophers that accepted the truth will say to people of a time that like socrates said he said i don't deny your divine wisdom but all i say is i don't recognize i don't know it because all i know is human wisdom so he says, look, the philosophers are doing their best within the rules that they set for themselves, just to use human wisdom. And that's what they can work with. But the other two religions, while in the one sense they're coming close to the true, well, the other, I'm sorry, the other two religions, Christianity and Islam, while originally they approached the true religion, they also went away from it. Like he said earlier, because they turned away from Ed So You see how important Rita Levy considers facing Ed Sol and Tefillah, making that dissenter because his whole Judaism is about the experience we had of Hashem through prophecy in this particular place. So these other religions that eventually turned their backs to Israel are therefore turning their back to, to true religion. And then he says they're even worse than Yeruvim. Why? Because Yeruvim did Avodah Zarah, but his Yisrael did Bersamila, kept Shabbos, just broke some mitzvahs due to political reasons, but they accepted the God of Yisrael, took Manam Mitzrayim, like the Egel worshippers that we spoke of earlier. The people of the two other religions, okay, so they don't worship idols, but once they changed the place of uh, which direction to face in prayer, and they sought the Indian Halaki, the Halaki, the place where it can't be found, and they stopped doing the mitzvahs, then they're very distant from us, even more than Yeruvim. He says the people who worship the Baal are. Um, even he says, even you have to distinct make a distinction between Yeruvam, who made the Egolim, and the Baal worshippers, because the Baal worshippers were of Devadizara. But the word to worship the Ego were directing everything to Hashem Aleikh Israel. And the prophets were the Via Hashem. They weren't the Via Baal. 
So the point is that their avoda was directed to Hashem and Yisrael, but they did something high of Misa, as we learned by the Egel, right? By they do something that not, not like Hashem's command. Okay, so basically his point is that Yerobim um, is better, and the king says, I don't know if I could say that the other two religions are compared to Yerobim, and the Chavah says, I have, no, I have no doubt about it. Well, let's get back to the descriptions of God. So he goes back to the fact that God has made descriptions, and he says, look, I'm going to give you an example. A muscle for this is the sun. The sun has there's one sun, but the various bodies get different effects from it. And when the sun's rays penetrate, we can call that the sun itself. So too, the general power that comes from Hashem, we call that Elikim. When it penetrates and it's part of something, we call that Hashem. Where does it penetrate? The souls, the, the pure souls, which is the perfect souls that start from Adam. The masses of the people are like the, the shells, the leaves, and not the, not the kernel, the pure kernel. The God of the people of the heart, who have that heart, are called, is called Hashem. And that's why he says, once Adam was created in Bereshit's Perak Beis, it no longer says, I like him, but it says Hashem like him. Because once, he has, once Hashem is connected to a human, he has the Shem Malay, the full name, because he has a name that he could be referred to. And the world is, in fact, only completed when he had Adam. So he says, the name Elikim, anyone can get reach that through his own logic. The question of denying, they can only deny Hashem. Because Hashem is prophecy, right? Having a good association with Hashem himself is prophecy. And that's very strange. Even that individual should have it, certainly a group. So basically this idea of prophecy was the question. And when Pari said, Lo yodati es Hashem, I'm not familiar with Hashem, he's basically denying this kind of intimate knowledge of God, which is prophecy. But God, Elikim, any human, anyone who has logic, anyone who thinks right, will understand the idea of Elikim. This is a Budalevi's idea. It's an amazing idea. You have to think about it very deeply. Um, Moshe responds to Pius as God of Ivrim. It's referring to the Ovis because his point was, no, 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 look. God did have a connection to people. We see, there is a Hashem. There is someone that we can relate to because, remember, Avim and Yaakov, Moshe Stangpari, you know how divine providence followed them. The name Hashem, we could talk about Panim, we could talk about facing Hashem. Or the Kim is something that we just reach through the mind. Because it's very through, because through logic you can see that the world is controlled and has an order. But what God is, what is God? We know that there is a God, but what is God? So philosophers say one thing, and that's the most the closest to the truth. But the idea of Hashem, we cannot reach through logic. The only testimony to Hashem the only testimony to the idea of Hashem is through prophecy. And a prophet, through that, becomes, as it were, superhuman, becomes angelic, becomes a different person. He gets a ruach. And that ruach, that spirit, envelops the prophet when he has prophecy, envelops the Nazir, the Mashiach, is anointed, and anyone who has the divine inspiration on him. And he says, when a person has that kind of experience, he no longer has his questions about what's God, and he stops thinking about logical proof. And then he loves God, then he worships God from love, and he's willing to give up his life, because he's connected to God in such an intimate and deep, 
way, such that being distant from God will be the greatest tie, which is the opposite, he says, of the philosophers. Philosophers say the worship of God is only appropriate and true. That you should revere God. But it's not something that they actually care about because they didn't have that experience. Said the king, and this is a very famous passage, he says, now I know the difference between the names Elohim and Hashem. And I know how distant, how different the God of Abraham is from the God of Aristotle. Because Hashem is what we desire by sensing him and seeing him, while Elikim is what we is what people can can believe in based on logic. When you sense Hashem with your senses, that's the, through vision, through the prophecy, then we would give up our life for Hashem out of love, willingness to die for him. While logic can only show us that there's something that we should revere. As long as we don't suffer from it and therefore he says you cannot blame aristotle for mocking the rituals of worshiping god because he didn't even know whether god knows it and the king and the cover says yes but avram on the other hand was willing to suffer he suffered in orkazdim he suffered when he was traveling he suffered through the mila at the chase okay and the reason why he was able to bear all this is because he sensed hashem not just reached knowledge of Hashem through logic. He sensed, he knew that everything he does is revealed to God, and he's being paid, rewarded by God. He didn't take a step forward or backwards without permission from God. So, of course, he no longer cared. And this is a big theme, which we're going to get back to. Um, it's at the end of this essay. But he says, Avram reached a point where he no longer cared about his original logical proofs for God. You see, this is an amazing point. And he, and he reads that the Hazal told the Pasuk Hashem told Avram, go leave your Itztagninus. Bidalev reads that as that Avram Avinu originally discovered God through logic. But then eventually, that wasn't important to him. And what he's saying is that the essence of Judaism is not Avram Avinu's discovery of God. The essence of Judaism is what happened after that, when Avram had experience of Hashem. So Avram had to discover God, that's how he approached God. But then, Hashem revealed himself to him and then he had experience of Hashem and now that's when Judaism started. Therefore Hashem is called Elikei Yisrael because there was the only nation that saw him. He's called Elikei Haaretz because Eretz Yisrael, because it's special, has is able to, is amenable for achieving Nevuah with the conditions necessary which are like which are like when you have to work the ground in order for a certain thing to grow. We had that analogy before. Those that follow the Torah follow those who have prophetic vision. So that's all the, the, the idea of following the Torah is that we're following those who saw Hashem beheld them. And we're at peace by believing what we receive from the prophets. Even though, even though, he says, very interesting, he says, the prophets talk in parables and sometimes simply, while the philosophers are very sophisticated. But people don't find the same kind of tranquility by reading the philosophers as they do from the Nevi'im, even though the philosophers are using logic that's more attractive. As it were, he says, an amazing thing, he says, the souls, the, the souls of the masses have a sense of where the truth lies, as if they have a certain prophetic sense. So the king says to him, oh, so that means you're basically denigrating the philosophers. You're saying they're not good. Chavah says, no, I just don't accept that human success 
lies in finding truth. Merely knowledge, making your intellect into action. Because it says that would mean that your whole life you have to dedicate to thinking, to study, which that can't can't be done while engaged in this world. Which is why the the philosophers have to avoid property, honor, children. And then, even then, when they become perfect, they don't accept reward for it. They just say to do good because that's the most appropriate thing, to be like God. While the Torah... Oh, and even their laws, he says, are just are not absolute, only as necessary, while the Torah only sets the absolute laws. And the king said back to him, okay, well, that light that you're referring to is gone, the light of the Torah, and it's never going to return again. And the Chavah said back to him, no, it only sunk if you don't see, if you don't have an open eye. And you think that the state of B'nai Israel indicates, and the greatness of the other nations indicates that our light will never return. The king says, I'm not proving for that. I'm not proving for the other nations because I see that the other two nations, as in Islam and Christianity, the other two religions, argue with each other, but they're both successful. So it can't be that they're both right. So it's not that I'm taking um, material temporal success as proof to the success of their of their of their message, and in fact, he says the Muslims and the Christians they take pride in the early Christians, early Muslims that suffered a lot for their religion with faith. In fact, he says, you know, if I would see the Jews suffering, shame shemayim and accepting it, then I would revere them very much. And the king said, and the Chavah says to me, you know, you're right about that. that we have a problem that we don't accept our suffering happily for Hashem's sake. But however, however, said the Chavar, we could, with a word, with a word, convert, become free. Instead, we stay faithful to our religion. So that's a great sacrifice, which earns us atonement. But you're right. If we would accept our suffering for the sake of Hashem, things wouldn't have stayed, stayed, we wouldn't have been in Gullus for so long. But God, he says, has a great, and this is an idea that the Ramam says in Hilchas Malachim, that there's a great secret that God has by, by sending us into exile. There's a purpose in us being in exile, like the wisdom of a seed. You put a seed into the soil, and it seems to just turn into dirt and water. And it's no longer a seed, but eventually, actually, it turns the dirt into water, into, it turns them into his nature, and turns them all into a tree. Similarly, the religion of the Torah and other religions, eventually the other religions will turn into the Torah, even though by us mixing into other nations, what seems to be happening is that the Torah is, is being corrupted and turning into the other religions. These other religions are preparatory for the Mashiach. That's the fruit. And the tree will become one. So he says the fact that these other religions, this is, this is of course, the idea of and that's the purpose of the spread of Christianity and Islam. The fact that these other religions don't worship Avodah and they believe in the unity of God, and you're going to praise them, and you're going to say, "Well, Bnei Yisrael worshipped idolatry back in the days of the kings and say from Malachim." He says, "Well, on the other hand, you could look at the fact that the people in these other nations deny divine providence and even make songs about it. That God doesn't." See, see, watch over man. 
and reward the good and punish the evil. While in our nation, this was never heard of. People that we believed in, they were people that worshipped gods and believed that those forms could bring down spirituality, because that's what people believed in. But that was like an addition to their religion. But they didn't reject the essence of the religion, which is that there's a connection to God and there's a hashgah, the divine providence, from God. And he says, you know, if even these days, if those powers that the, the people think the images had, if that was accepted today, we would also today, like people do other stupid things, we would believe in that. Even though the Torah commands us not to do it, and Torah commands us not to do all sorts of incantations and people, and things that change nature, like magic, and people do it. So the same thing is with, because it's just accepted, people believe in it, same thing we would do that. Now, I was planning on doing the end of the fourth essay, I think better idea is to leave it for next time. That's where Rudalevi gives his amazing analysis of the book of creation. Those very deep things about the wisdom contained in that book and other wisdoms in Chazal. We will leave that for next time because this is quite long. So we're going to stop here in the fourth essay. Maimur V'i Simichavdal, the fourth essay, number 24.